welcome to your Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Tomorrow Never Dies. James Bond sets out to stop a media mogul's plan to induce war between China and the UK in order to obtain exclusive global media coverage. It's Brosnan number two. Mm-hmm. And it's also Bond guest number two. Who's our Bond guest? It is one of our super fans, one of our very good friends. It's James the Librarian. Howdy. Glad to be here. Thank you for coming to talk Bond with us. It's great. I, I thought I had more feelings on this movie, and as I was watching, I realized I didn't remember a dang thing about it. This was this was <laughs> almost a brand new experience. So I have come to realize that with the Brosnan ones, I keep thinking... Oh, is that the one with Denise Richards? No. Is that the one with Denise Richards? No. I don't I don't remember anything about them. I was really disappointed when this was not the theme song that was done by Garbage, but I guess we'll probably get there. Yeah, no. Shirley Manson does show up eventually, but it's not this movie. Sadly, no. <laughs> Woo boy. Okay, so James, what what is your experience with Bond? Like, who was your first James Bond? Oh, my first was Pierce Brosnan, was Goldeneye. I have distinct memories of going to the theater with my father and seeing it when it was, I think, in first run even. And I had no, I had no knowledge of the character. I had no experience with it. But, you know, it just, it was just action and it was quippy lines and I, I was, I was taken. It's a good one to start out on. Yeah, and it's hard for me to separate because I saw it first, and also I played the video game nonstop for the better part of a decade. So it's hard to, sure. to kind of differentiate if, if it's actually a quality film for me anymore, because sometimes I'll go back and watch it, and I'll be like, well, that was kind of stupid, but I love it. That's I mean, okay. Bond must be taken with a grain of salt always. There are none of these films, except maybe for the Daniel Craig ones, where it's not going to be a little dumb, and mm -hmm. that's okay. The last Bond movies I've watched have been the Daniel Craig ones, and the last time I watched any other pre-Craig film was probably 15 years, maybe? It's been a long while. And so to, to watch this one again and see the, the stark difference in, in the treatment of almost every aspect of the franchise was just, it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was kind of jarring from what I've had in my head for the last 10 years or so. Oh, sure. And while... These these move so much better than the predecessors, for sure. The second half of Roger Moore is one of the worst slogs you could ever try to go through. <laughs> they're, like they are boring movies. They're, they're bad, and I know there there's a certain element of this that is just nostalgia. So like I'm I know I remember watching this. I can't remember if I saw these in the theater. I may have been a tiny bit too young. It's possible I saw them, I don't remember, but I remember at least watching them at home when they were still fairly new. But there's that whole like, oh, I remember the technology being really cool at the time. So like just thinking that that was really neat at the time, that's fun to watch. Well, there's no way you were too young for this in theaters because I saw this one in theaters. Well, I remember I seeing specifically that banner sequence in a movie theater. Okay, it's possible that my parents may have considered me too young at the time to have seen this movie in theaters. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember the BMW 
parking garage scene very distinctly because I remember seeing something on 2020 or some some news program and oh, yeah. not not understanding yeah, the behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, and just not understanding product placement. And now it's very obvious. But but then I was like, that's such a cool car and such a cool phone. And yeah, it's it's different now that I'm older. It's really not the coolest car. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a very basic car. It's it's the fact that it's so loaded with stuff. That makes it super fun because, you know, they did the BMW in GoldenEye, but they couldn't use it for anything. So this time when they got BMW, they were like, give us a car we can actually, you know, blow up. You have to blow it. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, as we talked about, GoldenEye was the beginning of Bond as a blockbuster franchise. Mm -hmm. The budget for this film was $110 million. I think this is the first time we've gone over $100 million. Oh, no. Sure. Like last film, it was like 60 60 oh, wow. and that's the highest they've ever gone yeah oh they oh they almost doubled it that's insane <laughs> worldwide this movie made 333 million dollars holy cuss topped what? the last gross value oh. damn people loved these movies oh. and i i i mean I, I can't blame them after how successful goldeneye was in reviving the franchise people were excited mm -hmm. the problem was that this movie got rushed by the producers Sure. They desperately wanted it to be as good as Goldeneye. And Kirk Kerkorian had recently purchased MGM. So MGM's gone through like five different bankruptcies and they're in the middle of another one. And he wanted Tomorrow Never Dies to get released to coincide with the public stock offering of the new MGM. Oh, wow. he was trying to inflate the price. What didn't help was that after they secured that new release date, they couldn't find a studio to work in. Pinewood, where they always did their stuff, was completely booked for The Phantom Menace. Oh, <laughs> so sad. Lucas had taken over all of that. And then, you know, everything else was booked. So they wound up filming most of the interior sequences in a converted Asda warehouse, the British branch of Walmart. Oh, wow. What? Yeah. They filmed Bond in Walmart? In a Walmart warehouse. That's sad. I mean- it kind of makes sense if you think about it. These are not typical Bond sets like we're used to. True. But They're like big and open. Mm -hmm. Then they are warehousey. <laughs> That's so bizarre. <laughs> this is so bizarre. It explains all the parking lots for sure. <laughs> I think it also explains how like hectic this movie definitely feels. And some of those interiors, yeah, if, if knowing that. That actually kind of fits with how some of them look just kind of very big and very open and very dark. <laughs> yeah, that, that does, yeah. Yes, all sorts of black and dark paints everywhere to hide the fact that we are in a big metal that, box. That really does, ex that does explain the design of all the interiors. It's all like scaffolding or like it, it all looks like warehouse. It does all look like, <laughs> like warehouse made to look like modern architecture crap. We've said this many times. Maybe some of the best production design in the planet is used in all of these different films. Like, some of them are boring, but they are never not immaculately designed. That's not this movie. <laughs> that That's not this movie. Well, it's not bad, but it's not immaculate. It's really well designed for the circumstances, clearly, but also for the movie that was being made. Okay. It does not detract from the film. No. It does not lessen the film. It just definitely explains the film. 
the if they were working on a rush that some of the like the end when i got to the end i'm like wait that's the end it just ends and that was a bad line to end on wow so if, if they were that was definitely a bad <laughs> but that is a classic roger moore bond line to end on they're looking for us james let's stay undercover It is for sure. It is not the worst pun in this. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> it's not. Oh man, they were bad. They were so bad. They just went for just, like let's just make puns and quips. That's the only dialogue we know how to write for this movie. I I, I, I cried at uh, Edifice Complex, so I don't know. I mean, it was oh. bad, but I thought it was really funny. <laughs> I I couldn't stop laughing. Oh. I had to pause it. It was so stupid. It was one of those ones that was so bad. <laughs> You had to appreciate that they're like, nope, we're doing this. We're doing this. If you're going to do it, just go. Do it. We had one of the most knockdown, drag out, gorgeous men in the universe say that line. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. They did it. It was great. Go for it. Go off, I guess. I mean, in general, the thing I feel about this movie is that, man, it's a hell of a ride in an action movie. It's also so dumb. It is very dumb. Yeah. Yeah, I can't argue with that. But but you know what? I didn't care. I didn't care most of the time at I, all. I enjoyed the ride. Exactly. And that's sometimes, especially if you're doing a sequel like this, mm-hmm. where you've had a really big, huge sea change, to go dumb isn't the worst idea in the world. No. It's like, give people something cool to look at and go for it. The opening sequence is nuts. Well, the opening sequence by nature of a Bond film is supposed to be nuts. I know, but like they and, upped the ante 20 times. And honestly, with Brosnan, they really established and have continued that on through the Craig that our opening sequence is going to set a tone and be insane. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try and up ourselves every single time. And so far, I mean, it's been a while since I've watched all of these back to back. They've done this. So- They've, yes, they have upped the ante. Which means we have high expectations for the next two. Yes, we do. All right. Well, our writers are Bruce Firestein, who worked on GoldenEye, wrote The World Is Not Enough, and wrote most of the 007 video games, including the original GoldenEye. Okay. So he's stuck around with the franchise, but not doing most of the movies. Oh, okay. What do we think of the writing? I mean, the dialogue is shit. <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's, like, puns. We love puns. I will never not love a pun. But they hang their hat But that's it. all they wrote. That's all <laughs> they wrote. I actually don't hate the plot. The plot is actually pretty great. It's it's really smart. It's, it, for 97, yeah. this plot is genius. Yeah, I, I was... I was floored when I was like, oh, this is the one with the news mogul guy. And like, until I was watching it again, I thought, there's no way it's going to be any good. Like, this is the most boring villain you can think of. It's the guy in charge of the news. And then I was like, wait, now that I'm watching it in in 2020, well, oh, it's a completely different experience (laughs) than I'm sure it was when I was 15, 16. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, we had this argument when we watched the movie Network, because we've seen this actually play out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we're like, oh no, it came trill. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, it's no longer entertainment. And also, this guy is totally modeled after an evil version of Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. But it's actually really entertaining, and it's a genius plot for a Bond villain. It's great. 
The morning, my golden retrievers. What kind of havoc shall the Carver Media Group create in the world today? News. Floods in Pakistan, riots in Paris, and a plane crash in California. Excellent. Mr. Jones, are we ready to release our new software? Yes, sir. As requested, it's full of bugs, which means people will be forced to upgrade for years. Outstanding. Mr. Wallace, call the president. Tell him if he doesn't sign the bill lowering the cable rates, we'll release the video of him with a cheerleader in the Chicago motel room. Inspired, sir. And after he signs the bill, release the tape anyway. Consider him slimed. Excuse me. The masterful thing they did was make him cartoonish. Yes. He was so cartoonish. Oh, yeah. And he is, but I think the thing is, if you were doing this now, you would you would play him more serious and stentorian because he looks like Steve Jobs and acts like Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense for him to be over the top because otherwise, if he's not, yeah, he is boring. But instead, he is mustache twirling the entire time, and that's what makes him fun. That's what makes him fun, because then he has henchmen to be evil. (laughs) Exactly. Because if he's not going to be the one to actually pull the trigger, then he can't be like evil, evil guy. Well, it's very art, Goldfinger. Totally. Like, Goldfinger was not a dude who could actually fight Bond in any form or fashion, Mm -hmm. but he had odd job. And yes. he had all these uh, different, uh, all this technology, and he had pussy galore. <sighs> so, like, it's that it's that same thing of you surround yourself with horrible people, and then you make them do it, and you pay more money than God, and you have more money than God, so you can do whatever you want. Yep, and that's that's brilliant. It's it's something they toyed with with the Brad Whitaker character mm-hmm. in the Living Daylights, but they really doubled down in this movie. Yeah, he was very over the top, but. When he first showed up, I was just like, this guy is doing everything short of looking straight in the camera and winking about being the villain. And I was really expecting it to be like a dramatic, like just a complete loss of dramatic tension. But no, it, it worked for me. It was so fun. I loved it. The movie was originally titled Tomorrow Never Lies, which is actually a more accurate title. True. But there was a typo on an early script, changing it to Tomorrow Never Dies, and the producers liked it. So they went with that. Yeah, okay. It's also somewhat inspired by the Beatles song, Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm. Firestein's pitch for the story was nine words in total. Words are the new weapons, satellites the new artillery. That's a great pitch. And it's a line used in the movie by Carver. That's a fucking great pitch. I know. (laughs) Man. Here's the thing. He kept it simple. Yeah. No, that's that's the genius of it. It's very simple. He did not overcomplicate the story, and that allowed them to jump from scene to scene to scene so quickly to action sequence. And the story, while like while the dialogue is shit, the story is not overcomplicated, which is one of my complaints of other Bond films. They overcomplicate stuff that shouldn't be that complicated. Yeah, Goldeneye sometimes feels like you need a world history degree to understand all the ins and outs of Trevelyan's motivations. I remember as a kid, I definitely didn't understand it. I barely understood that he was dead or he wasn't dead, then he was dead. Maybe he isn't. I don't know. Well, and like, if you go back to Dalton or even Roger Moore and some of those late ones, you jump for like four locations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for reasons that aren't really necessary to the plot, and you go, you didn't have to do all this. You could have just done a five second scene and explained it to us and we'd be done. (laughs) So they're, they're getting back to a simplicity core that they had with definitely Connery Mm -hmm. that works 
really well. Or at least Connery, when things were complicated, they had the characters talk about what was happening. Yeah. So like they did all your exposition for you. These movies are not supposed to be super smart. <laughs> no. They don't need to be. No. It's a fun spy movie. One of my literal notes I'm looking at here just says, as unsubtle as ever, isn't it? And yeah, that's that's definitely Bond. Roger Spottiswood, who we'll mention as our director, reworked the script a lot and hashed out the story with seven different leading writers in London. Oh. Working directly with Nicholas Meyer, who wrote Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, four, The Voyage Home, and six, The Undiscovered Country, the movie Time After Time, and Medici to do the actual rewrites. And then it went to Daniel Petrie Jr., who wrote Beverly Hills Cop and In the Army Now, and David C. Wilson, who wrote The New Man from Uncle, to do even more rewrites on the script. In the Army Now is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> not have done this without the help of my brother the pool man <laughs> we we are unabashedly fans of Polly shore we at Macintosh and mod i'm not ashamed to say that no and son-in-law it's on hbo go watch it people so i think that's one of the issues here with the dialogue especially because they were rushing this through it was a script by committee uh. so it worked for the plot Mm-hmm. Because they ha- they were like, we can't overcomplicate this. We've got to do it and do it quick. But dialogue-wise, they had no time to think up anything remotely complex or interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like, write dumb jokes, put in script. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that tracks. And part of the problem with this was the original plot of the movie. It was set in July 1997 during the transfer of Hong Kong from British to Chinese rule. But it was dropped... When of all people, Henry fucking Kissinger, who was a consultant on the (laughs) film, because he had a long ass career of consulting on films after this, Hmm. stated that if something actually occurred during that handoff, the movie would look terrible for suggesting it. That's fair. (laughs) And it would also immediately date the movie, which was set for a release around Thanksgiving. Also fair. So. That January, the January they're starting to film, they had to start rewrites. Hmm. Literally, everyone had already been cast. Mm. They were signed up and contracted. And Jonathan Price and Terry Hatcher forced more rewrites by saying how unhappy they were with the characters the way they were written. Ah, okay. Hmm. So, like, it kept going. Hmm. I have the feeling they were doing rewrites on set. Oh, sure. Because at a certain point, they had to start filming. Yeah, at a certain point, you have to go. So I think, I, I, th- I think that's what it is. It's a very good basic plot, mm-hmm. but because of that rush, we didn't get any good dialogue. Yeah. And that's the only thing this like movie's missing. Like the only missing. thing that survived were the jokes. I know. And that's the only thing from this movie that's missing that would make it, like, honestly great. It's believable shit for people to say. Mm. Our director is Roger Spottiswood, with the most British name <laughs> ever. But funny enough, he is our first North American director of a Bond film, because he is Canadian. Oh. Before this, he directed Under Fire, Shoot to Kill, Turner and Hooch, Air America, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, the TV miniseries in The Band Played On, and the TV miniseries Hiroshima. And after this, he did The Sixth Day. What do we think of directing? The direction is very competent. It does not move the same way Goldeneye did. No, but I think that comes back to the fact that we know that the script is not 
very tight. There were times though, so part of it's we're in a warehouse, right? Everything feels super open. But that also, it felt like an older Bond movie. Mm -hmm. A lot of those looks, I was like, this feels like I'm watching a Connery version again. Mm Mm-hmm. Like some of that Goldfinger and From Russia with Love type big wide shots mm-hmm. that we didn't have in Goldeneye. It was very close and in your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was definitely some moments that, like, like the when they were going down the the side of the building there, and it's like there's these snap cuts going back and forth, and I was like, I think I'm going to be sick if you keep this up. And then there were some moments, <laughs> there were some moments that were, I think they were in slow motion, but it also could have been because I was streaming it on Netflix. But I was like, I don't know. I don't know what slow motion in this moment is supposed to do for me, but it's not giving me an emotion. It's just kind of making me bored. And it it, it wasn't it wasn't bad though. <laughs> uh, there was I'm sure there was something. Like now that I think of it, I guess nothing really stood out to me either, except for the stuff that I that I didn't like or the occasional close ups on dummies in in some of the stunt scenes. Oh my god! <laughs> mm-hmm. The the helicopter. Yes. <laughs> The helicopter explosion is particularly bad with the dummies in there where you're just like, come on. I had looked away from the screen and I looked back up and I was like, no, okay, I just, that's because I was in motion and I'm going to rewind it and it's going to be, it's going to be better. It's going to be not, not crash test dummies or even mannequins, but it was, it was, uh, I I took a picture and it's on my phone and I'm just going to treasure it forever now. It was it was rough when I saw that. That just took me out of everything. But it was funny, so, you know, I guess it was something. It's so bad because the second they have that helicopter down that Saigon Street and it tips like 70 degrees with the rotors hitting everything, mm-hmm. that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole the whole sequence is so amazing and then right at the end, it's still not as bad as Man with the Golden Gun. With the slide whistle and the car jumping over the Yes, river. yeah, I'll concede that point, definitely. That's that's still the worst. But, <laughs> all right, who could have been better? Martin Campbell, our director from GoldenEye, declined to do this movie. He didn't want to do two in a row, hmm. and instead went on to direct The Mask of Zorro. Mm, yeah, that's choice. a good one. Which I still can send. Excellent action movie. It is a good movie. Also, Vic Armstrong was up for this. I'm not sure exactly what he did, but there's a fun story is that he was the next director in line if Spottiswood didn't accept. Oh, okay. And Spottiswood actually called Armstrong to apologize, saying, I've just taken your movie. (laughs) So he immediately turned around and said, would you like to direct the second unit? Hmm. And Armstrong said, absolutely. Aw, that's that's a very, uh, I love honorable things like that. It was just like, yeah, this was going to be yours, man. And then I I took it. I, I said yes. (laughs) <laughs> Help me. Let's work together. I I like things like that. That well, makes me happy. And especially with Bond, second unit is a big it deal. It is a big deal. Like there's a ton of stuff that you film that doesn't involve any of the main actors totally. and you still got to do it all. That's cool. All right. Our cast. And we start with the man, Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. He got a haircut and he's still hot as fuck. <laughs> oh my God. All the biting. It's so sexy. Is it? It's a little much. I think it's sexy. (laughs) I like it. I'm also really into the chest hair. I'm I'm just into it. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. I'm kind of over all of like the no chest hair that's all over the place right now. I'm like, yeah, let's bring back the chest hair from the 90s. He's in such a late 90s suit, though. (laughs) Oh, the suit is horrible, but he got a haircut. So it's better this time. I was like, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm. Well, and then he shows up in his name. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. 
The Navy boys have the best uniform. <laughs> it is. It's that blue. It's the best one, except for the India whites from the army. Oh, God, those are good. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm just having a nice little <laughs> moment over here. <laughs> I will say, he takes a movie where he easily could have gone off the rails with it, mm-hmm. and he plays just as well in a very silly dialogue movie as yes. he did in Goldeneye with a more serious dialogue movie. He doesn't change his Bond portrayal, and that's impressive. Mm-hmm. He's very much committed to this film. He doesn't seem like he's exasperated by the film. Like He seems like he's having just as much fun. Like He's having fun flirting with the ladies. He's having fun, you know, fighting the villains, you know, messing with Q, outsmarting the, the baddies. He just plays, he plays into the comedy the way he's supposed to Correct. when the bits come. And he just stays in the character the entire time. Mm-hmm. So the script is all that's changed around him, mm-hmm. which is what you need from James Bond. Yes. Yeah, the backseat driver line. I was like, I don't know. Then it was like, I, I kind of sat with it for a minute. I'm like, no, he made it work. Like any of those, any of those bad quips were, well, 90% of them were good. <laughs> he he sold did them. his best to sell it. Yeah, He sold sure. them. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. He stated that filming this movie was, quote, like pulling teeth. And got injured during a fight scene when a stuntman's helmet hit him in the face. He got eight stitches down the side of his face. And from then on, they had to film him from one side only. Not the face. (laughs) The moneymaker. So it might be worth going back and investigating. It was like, okay, when did that happen? Mm. And why are you... Why are you in profile so much, James? (laughs) It's not a lot of trivia for Pierce this time. But next up, we have... Jonathan Price as Elliot Carver. It's the High Sparrow. Before this, he was in Breaking Glass, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Brazil, which was his giant break, Jumpin' Jack Flash, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Glengarry Glen Ross, The Age of Innocence, and Evita. After this, Ronan, Stigmata, What a Girl Wants, Pirate's Curse of the Black Pearl, De Lovely, Pirate's Dead Man's Chest, Leatherheads, Game of Thrones, The Wife, The Two Popes, and Tales from the Loop. I love him. He's so good. I love, he's just one of those actors that whenever he shows up in anything, I'm like, I love him. Whether he's playing a, a goodie or a baddie, I'm just happy to see him. Any other actor would have overdone this. Yes. And he somehow found the exact right groove to be both mustache twirling and also a true psycho mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, there's just enough gravitas from him where it was like, he could be he could be hammy and he could just really he could really like nosedive this role but yeah he he hit all the good points for it like he was he was just believable enough but also a little like maybe a step beyond believable you have to understand why people would believe him and follow him and he hits that there's just there's something he just hits the exact right tone uh-huh. and it's amazing who could have been better <laughs> His two popes co-star, Anthony Mm. Hopkins, who was cast in this role Mm -hmm. and joined the production, but after three days with the set in complete chaos and no completed shooting script, he walked away. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. That's fair. (laughs) Because he went went to go do what's it? He left to go do The Mask of Zorro. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. With Martin Campbell. Yeah. The pressure was so on to finish the film on time. New pages were coming in constantly. And after three days, Sir Anthony went, (laughs) fuck this. I have better things I could do with my time. I can do whatever I want. Leave me alone. 
When shooting on this film began on April 1st, 1997, I kid you not, they started filming on April Fool's. When they started filming, Jonathan Price had not yet been. What month did the movie come out again? It came out Thanksgiving. That's so short. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Holy. Yeah, that's a very short turnaround for a Bond film. They pushed this movie way too fast. Yeah. It's amazing it came out as well as it did. Because like now they film for like two years. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, part of that is you have Sam Mendes, so, you know. And, you know, this last time around, Daniel Craig got hurt, so we had that to That too. You break your leg, that, that tends to cause some problems. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if Anthony Hopkins would do this any better, let's be honest. I don't think he would get the psychotic part. I mean, I say that to the man who has an Oscar for Hannibal Lecter. But <laughs> I get it, but he just, he wouldn't have been as melodramatic. No, I, I agree. I I really like Jonathan Price's portrayal, so I would not trade him for Anthony Hopkins. No. Nope. Next up, as Lynn, Michelle Yeoh. Ugh. Before this, of note, because she was a longtime Hong Kong actress, uh-huh. the movies most people might know her are Easy Money, Super Cop, and Super Cop 2. Mm-hmm. After this, Moonlight Express, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Memoirs of a Geisha, Sunshine, Far North, Kung Fu Panda 2, Marco Polo on TV, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Crazy Rich Asians, Star Trek Discovery, Last Christmas, and she will be appearing in all of the Avatar sequels. I just, like, we're watching this, and she's she's doing her martial arts, and I was like, this is the thing she's good at. Uh-huh. Like, I love her in Crazy Rich Asians. She's an amazing actress, but, like, that's not even the thing she's good at. Yeah, everybody everybody forgets that, especially if they just know her now. Because it was like, if you were around in 1999, you remember seeing Crouching Tiger being like, holy shit. She was a member of the Jackie Chan stunt team. Uh Uh-huh. Like, yeah, her acting is not her best thing. And she is a certified badass. She's the most badass Bond girl we've ever had. Yeah. By far. I love her. I feel like she wasn't in the movie that much, though. It. It felt like there's just stretches where I was like, wait, who am I looking for again? Oh, that's right. Yeah, she shows up early on, so you know she's there. And then you have the whole Paris Carver subplot mm-hmm. that you have to get through first before they bring Wylin back. So it's not until like the last, I don't know, third third of the movie where she becomes the actual real player. I will say they, they pepper her throughout the rest of the movie to remind you that's like, Oh, by the way, there is another secret agent trying to figure this shit out. Yeah, because at the beginning, you don't know if she's like an actual adversary or not. Because, you know, sometimes we have two bad guys we have to fight. Uh Uh-oh. But it turns out like, oh, no, she's actually like someone who you're going to have to work with. And I appreciate that it's like Bond is totally wanting to hit on her and she's not having it for a long ass time. I don't want to deal with you. (laughs) I have my own shit to deal with, dude. Go away. You were pretty good with that hook. It comes from growing up in a rough neighborhood. Uh-huh. You were pretty good on the bike. Well, that comes from not growing up at all. Here, me. Don't get any ideas, Mr. Bond. Just off the cuff, I thought we might link up. Work hand in hand? Stick close. Each other. Maybe we go after General Chang together. Your turn. Thanks for washing my hair. I work alone. Of course, Michelle Yeoh demanded that she do most of her own stunts. Yeah, huh? Telling her fellow motorcycle stuntman, 
That's right. Pierce didn't do the motorcycle stunts, but she did. Mm-hmm. Told the stuntman to drive faster in the helicopter sequence. <laughs> She's like, do it faster, doofus. Yeah. She wanted to perform all of her own stunts, but Spottiswood had to come in and be like, okay, number one, no. Mm-hmm. That's too much. And number two, insurance. They won't insure you if we do that. Correct. Fair. We yeah. can't. Absolutely not. But she was the one who decided to have her hair down so it would be flying out behind her, adding to the speed. Mm-hmm. And for the bicycle shop fight, they called the Jackie Chan stunt team in to do it because none of the actual stunt people wanted to fight with her because she did full contact fighting. Yeah. So because she had worked with Chan's stunt team, she knew and perfected that style all of the American and UK hired stunt guys were like, fuck that shit. We're not doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> so they called in the big guns to go ahead and get that sequence. That's awesome. I love that. It's and it amazing. looks like it's pulled straight from a Jackie Chan film. It does. It's amazing. It's fucking awesome. <sighs> so cool. I do love that Bond comes in right at the last second just for a little one pow. Knocks the guy on the head. <laughs> on to... Terry Hatcher as Paris Carver. Before this, she was on The Love Boat, Tango and Cash, MacGyver, Soap Dish, Two Days in the Valley, and The Ventures of Lois and Clark. After this, she was in Spy Kids, Desperate Housewives, Resurrecting the Champ, Coraline, and Supergirl. Ooh. She's a wet blanket. It's not her fault. No. She's a good actress. She is. There is nothing to this character. (laughs) She's boring. She's so boring. You could take out the Paris Carver subplot and it really wouldn't mean shit. True. Like it's not even high enough stakes to really justify James's desire for revenge. Yeah, I was really excited as a kid when she was cast because I was a big fan of Superman. And I I don't know what I thought then, but now I'm... mm. She was so good in Soap Dish and that was not... That was nowhere here in this role. She's not interesting at all. Like she's literally just here. To show us her ass and sleep with James Bond. Yeah. I, that's, that's all she's here for. And I mean, that's a very important role in the Bond <laughs> franchise. It is. Like, don't get me wrong. Many a woman have fought for that spot in these films. I don't want to downgrade that. But she is worth more than that. Yeah, I think I think that's when it's especially frustrating for these movies. Yes. Is when you cast a really good actress and then you write this kind of a shitty character around it and you go... You had a really talented actress. You could have done something with this. Yeah. Even if she's only in the movie for a total of about 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Even if she is here to be a subplot and Mm -hmm. then for James to get really messed up over her. Yeah. That's still important. Like you could have made it more of like they did have a really meaningful relationship. He left her. She was devastated over it. And like they do like they do reconnect. And she ends up getting murdered because she happens to be involved with the dude that he's chasing down. It almost makes me think if they cut all of that stuff because they were like, we got to keep moving. And then they didn't realize that if they were going to do that, they might as well just cut the entire subplot. Like, I think if they had just cut her out to begin with, it would have been better for the movie as a whole. She also was not cast before shooting started on the movie. Yeah. She took the role, according to her, to fulfill her husband's lifelong dream of being married to a Bond girl. Huh. That's fair. Oh, okay. <laughs> also, like, paychecks. Yeah. I, like, I think there were plenty of other reasons, but that was her, like, press junket answer. That's a, that's a good press junket answer. Yeah. 
But her scenes had to be filmed incredibly quickly, and this also factors in, because she became unexpectedly pregnant. Yeah. And she agrees with us in not being enthused about her performance, said it was, quote, an artificial kind of character. You don't get any special satisfaction from it. Yeah. Like, she she serves no purpose. I wonder if the pregnancy played into that, where they started throwing out lines and throwing out lines, and they knew they had to keep her under contract obligations. But they were just like, we have to film this in, I don't know, a few days. Like, we have very specific scene we need with you. We need you in your underwear. You ain't going to be able to film that scene here in a hot minute. We got to do this now. Yeah. And then you're no use to us anymore. So then you're done. So then we're killing you. The end. Hollywood's great to women, huh? Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I understand there are some constraints with the physical nature of a pregnancy being involved, but... Uh, uh, They did have a full love scene planned, but again, we had the unexpected pregnancy. She appeared late one day for filming and Brosnan started fighting with her on set. Then, quickly that same day, started apologizing profusely when he found out that her pregnancy was what caused her to be late because she was sick. (laughs) <laughs> the appropriate way to deal with that. Yes. Like, anytime I hear any of this shit about people being late, I am I am an on-time person. So I'm just like, no, like, this is my nightmare. I cannot deal with you people. But I appreciate that he got new information and he apologized for being a jerk. Yes. <laughs> Originally, people thought Paris was actually going to be a character that we've already established in several films, like Natalia Simonova mm-hmm. or Sylvia Trench somebody that's reoccurred early in the franchise. However, they were afraid that fans might get pissed off if they killed off an established character like that. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to make it an entirely new character. Okay. Who could have been better? Natasha Henstridge and CeeLo Ward, who was told that she was too old for the role. Fuck them. I love CeeLo Ward. (laughs) Fuck them hard. Celia Ward was on Sisters at this time, which was one of the best goddamn shows ever. That that was dumb. <laughs> She's hot. She can get it now. <laughs> God true. damn it. You're not wrong. I am mad. I am mad. This franchise has disappointed us many <sighs> times. I mean, Natasha Hintrins is also a beautiful lady, but uh, I'm mad. As Henry Gupta, Ricky J. Now, if you don't immediately recognize Ricky Jay, you have probably seen him on some kind of David Copperfield magic special. He is the incredibly famous sleight of hand card magician who is known for doing like close up card magic and being incredibly good at it. And then also working in like good storytelling elements with it as well. He's very much a guy who like elevated magic into sort of a more intimate theatrical style. But he's also been in a ton of movies because of this as well. Before this, he was in House of Games, Homicide, Spanish Prisoner, and Boogie Nights. After this, Mystery Men, Magnolia, State in Maine, Heist. He's in like every fucking mammoth movie. Incident Loch Ness, Deadwood. He's the card dealer. Last Days, The Great Buck Howard, Red Belt, The Brothers Bloom, and Sneaky Pete. Hmm. He holds a world record for throwing playing cards. And the producers wanted a scene where he threw cards at Bond. So they set it up to where he would be 50 to 75 feet away and asked him to hit Brosnan in the face. And I believe Ricky Jay told them, this is a bad idea, just so you know. 
and I believe he cut Pierce Brosnan. No, wow. because he's that good at throwing cards. I had no idea who he was. He's all right in this movie. Like they don't use him. He's he's a stunt cast. Yeah, but like they don't use him in any way, and I had no idea who he was. So it's like- also he is as an actor. Like in Deadwood, he's really great because his whole style is very calm and deadpan, mm-hmm. and he's absolutely the wrong person for this fucking movie. <laughs> His style does not match the tone of this movie at all. Honestly, if they wanted stunt casting and they wanted to go the magician route, they should have gotten Penn Jillette. Ooh, jeez. Penn would have been great. Penn would have been perfect energy for this movie. He would have been the next Alan Cumming. He would have. I'm a genius. He would have been as as, he would have had the same amount of impact on this movie that Alan Cumming had on Goldeneye. That's the exact same energy. Yeah, and it's that's actually that's perfect stunt casting. Yeah. All right, that's it for the main cast. On to our pawns, random people of note. We have Joe Don Baker returning as Wade. This is so weird. I just love it to hear him go, "Hey, Jimbo!" I hate it so much. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just, it's so. Great. I remember in Goldeneye, I was kind of like, "Oh, he's obnoxious. He's kind of like the the Southern sheriff who was also in one too many movies." And oh, you mean JW Pepper? <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. David loves him so much. JW Pepper's so great. Oh, it's one of it's, my favorite things ever. It's awful, but it's enjoyable because of how wrong yeah. he is. Just when he, I've been deputized. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to go on a secret mission. Oh, boy. (laughs) Opened up a can of worms here. I apologize. Uh, Oh, oh, that was my life for a solid month. (laughs) Solid month. Hey, you went right along with it. Oh, I enjoyed it. But, okay, let's not forget the Thunderball thing. Oh, that's true. (laughs) Oh, the mighty Thunderball. (laughs) Thank you, Johnny Cash, for writing a Bond theme. Thank you so much. My life, really. Joe Don Baker's better in Goldeneye because the bit they keep playing with is the CIA has no knowledge of our of our whereabouts right now. I don't know what you're talking about when you say the CIA. Like that's a fun bit, and they don't play it as much in this movie because mm-hmm. Wade is supposed to be there but invisible, and that's the tension that's there. So, eh, it's fine. He's funny in his one scene. I just like hearing him call James Bond Jimbo. We have Judy Dench returning as M. Yeah. Who gets one hell of a scene in the mm-hmm. control room. Yes, she does. We have Vincent Schiavelli as Dr. Kaufman. Yes. What a weird ass turn for this guy. Everything he plays is weird. I know, but this one's particularly weird. A comedic German torturer. I don't know. Desmond Llewellyn as Q. So good. As the Avis rent car salesman. I do like I I do like that bit of product placement. If you just sign here, Mr. Bond. <clears throat> it's the insurance damage waiver for your beautiful new car. Will you need collision coverage? Yes. Fire? Probably. Property destruction? Definitely. Personal injury? I hope not, but accidents do happen. They frequently do with you. Well, that takes care of the normal wear and tear. Do I need any other protection? Only from B007, unless you bring that car back in pristine order. Shall we? Shall we? Samantha Bond as Moneypenny, showing up in the 
Aston Martin, which is quite entertaining. Window goes down. She's got a desk in front. <laughs> Colin Salmon, who's making his first appearance as Robinson. This is the other guy in the control room who's working with M. He's going to show up as a reoccurring helper along with M and this, the Secret Service stuff. We have Jeffrey Palmer as Admiral Roebuck. This is super funny because he's a famous character actor and Judy Dench's constant co-star on the sitcom As Time Goes By. Oh, okay. And did tons and tons of movies with her. So it's very fun to have them being opposing forces in the control room. We have Julian Fellows as the Minister of Defense. That was so weird. The longtime actor who then pivoted to writing to create Downton Abbey. Yep. We have Al Matthews as Master Sergeant 3. He's a folk singer who is also a space marine in Aliens. As the leading seaman of the HMS Devonshire, Gerard Butler, in a very early film role. Mm-hmm. As the captain of the HMS Bedford, Pip Torrens, you would know him as Tommy Lascelles in The Crown and Hair Star in Preacher. Tommy Lascelles. Okay, <laughs> fine. It's important. As an air warfare officer on the HMS Bedford, the Earl of Grantham himself, Hugh Bonneville. Yeah. As a leading seaman in the HMS Bedford, Brendan Coyle, Mr. Bates himself. I think Julian Fellows cast Downton Abbey from this fucking movie. Well, there was in Judy Dench, so you're wrong. <laughs> we have Philip Chung Fung Kwok as General Chang. He is a legendary Shaw Brothers actor for Hong Kong cinema and is featured in John Woo's Hard Boiled. Mm. And finally, producer Michael G. Wilson plays the role of Tom Wallace because he has to get a role in every single one of these <laughs> fucking movies. Okay. But I mean, he did co-write nearly all the Roger Moore scripts, so I guess he's earned it. Our song is Tomorrow Never Dies, written and performed by Cheryl Crow. Okay, this is just bizarre. It is weird. Like, the song itself is not bad, but the performance by Cheryl Crow is very strange. She can't belt. No. She cannot belt like a Shirley Bassey. And that's what makes it not quite work. It's a really good song. It's, it's good, but it's really strange to have Katie Lang in the closing credits as opposed to this one. Like the, the Katie Lang song feels more like an opening opening kind of mm -hmm. song. Well, it's funny you <laughs> mention that. So John Barry, the guy who scored all of these movies, was approached, or he'd stepped down for License to Kill, and he turned down. He was indignant that Crow had already been assigned the title song. John Barry was a stuck-up little bitch. <laughs> but David Arnold took over the scoring duties. He was also unhappy that they'd already told Cheryl Crow she was getting the song. because, And this is the thing. If you compose the movie, usually you get to write the song. Yeah. Unless, you know, you're Michael Kamen and you don't write songs. And that's fine. But if you're going to go in and do the whole score, you also get to write the song because then you get to put the song throughout the score. So Arnold wrote another song, Surrender, which is the song that Katie Lang performs in the end credits. And he laces that throughout the score of the movie. John Barry legendarily did this with The Living Daylights. He hated the song that AHA did and instead used a pretender song that he wrote to lace throughout the movie as well. It's petty. But the Katie Lang song is better. I remember having the soundtrack, and I remember that one much more strongly than Cheryl. I didn't even remember Cheryl Crow did one. You remember it because it's peppered throughout yes. the movie <laughs> score. 
and and it's sung so much better. Yeah, it is. I mean, I listened. I was listening to like she could sing any of the other Bond songs. Like it's just as good. Mm -hmm. The song was actually chosen through a competition, which I think is pretty normal now. It's not quite as big as it as it was at this time because other artists who pitched were Emil Jorgensen, the band Pulp, the band Saint Etienne, and Mark Almond. Cheryl Crow didn't actually win the competition. Swan Lee won. But they weren't famous enough, a name for the franchise, so they were rejected when the producer said, we'll take your song, but we want a different artist Ooh. to perform it. Mm. That's, that's not good. It's marketing. I, I, I it get it. It sucks. Pulp's song, on the other hand, was changed to Tomorrow Never Lies and was included as a B-side for a later single. Hmm. Cheryl Crow's song did not chart in the U.S., but it made it to number 11 in the UK. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't do great. And rightfully so. It's not that good. Yeah. All right. On to trivia. Director Spottiswood came up with the idea for the whole motorcycle fight. Okay. He took Brosnan and Yo aside without the knowledge of the other and told them, don't let the other person drive. Yeah. Okay. So the shot we continue to get is that they are trying to fight over who's going to drive and get on the motorcycle. I like that. <laughs> it's perfect. It's a perfect little moment for them. The stealth ship that's used in the movie is not a fictional invention. Lockheed had secretly constructed one in the 1980s, but the Navy didn't want the filmmakers to reveal that secret. Oh, okay. wow. That ship was 160 feet long. It was called the Sea Shadow, and the movie's ship resembles it in its shape. Hmm. So this is an actual thing. One thing we figured out about the Bond franchise, and, and particularly the Broccoli family, they're like super connected to the fucking Pentagon. Yep. It's weird. They have a lot of money. 15 BMW 750s were destroyed in the filming of this movie. Yay, they got to destroy shit. They used 17 total. Okay. Four of the vehicles had hidden drivers that sat in the back of the car and video monitors were attached to the cameras under wing mirrors and on top of the windshield. Okay. Three more cars were used as backups. One was outfitted with the sliding glove compartment just for that one scene. One, called the, quote, cannon, was the one that got propelled off the roof and stripped of everything out of the car so it could get fired from a rig. And the remaining seven were all used for backup and exterior shots, with one staying in Hamburg just in case they needed it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many cars. It worked out well. That scene's awesome. It is very cool. This is the first time that Bond has an on-screen relationship with a Bond girl married to another man. Ooh. Hmm. That seems so hard to believe. It I does. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're huh. right. Everybody else is single. Mm, some of them are technically dating <laughs> other people. They did write a farewell scene for Q in this film. They were assuming that he'd be retiring because he was getting very old. But that didn't happen. Desmond Llewellyn stuck around for one more film. The production negotiated for permission to film in Vietnam, but as they got close to that date, they were refused and instead had to move to Thailand. Okay. One of the helicopters they were using inadvertently went over the embassy, and there were fears of spying at the U.S. <laughs> embassy because of the helicopters flying over. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. 
Bond gets his new Walter P99 because Walter wanted to debut its new firearm in the movie. Mm. Mm. That's kind of cool. Snow was essential for the opening sequence, but because it was melting, they had to truck in extra snow for the mountains. Weird. They were starting filming in April. Yeah. So, like, all the snow is going to be gone by the time they get there. Took two weeks to get all the snow in. (laughs) Much of the model work and underwater sequences were filmed at the Titanic tank just a few days after Titanic had wrapped filming. Okay. The two movies were actually released the same week. Yeah. And that's the reason that this is the only Brosnan-era Bond film that did not open at number one at the box office. Hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And again, it still did gangbusters. Yeah, because it was the other film. (laughs) If you weren't going to see Titanic, you you were were going to go see Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, and I remember that was the conversation that a lot of the ladies went to go see Titanic and all the gentlemen went to go see this. And honestly, they're both pretty good. Yeah. So Also, both really shitty dialogue. True. (laughs) (laughs) Roger Spottiswood was insistent on having an authentic Russian launcher for the opening sequence. What? I don't know. What? They actually found a decommissioned unit that they drove from Moscow to the filming location. What is this nonsense? I they <laughs> Jesus Christ. Maybe I mean, clearly the man did his research, so maybe it was a thing of if we reconstruct it, it's not gonna look right. No. That's the only plausible explanation. The launch party for Elliot Carver employed 500 extras. That was all real. It took 80 jumps to film the full Halo jump sequence, but that is still eight less than the parachute sequence from Moonraker. And the estimated body count in this film is 197, the highest death toll in a Bond film ever. Wow. Yeah, I guess so. I just, I don't remember. Well, there's the soldiers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll buy it. (laughs) I was just like, good grief. That is massively larger than any other Bond movie. There were definitely moments that felt like less like a spy movie and more like just a straight up action movie, especially towards the end. And that is Tomorrow Never Dies. Wow. We've done it. We watched, we, we did the thing. So we're on to ratings. And we need a rating scale. Okay. I mean, do we go with stealth ships? Does that make the most sense? Or remote control cars? Remote control BMWs is pretty good. How many remote control BMWs are we going to give this film? I'm going to give it a three. Okay. The dialogue knocks it down a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so blunt force by the end of the movie that you're just going, <laughs> just stop talking and show me the action. Thank you. <laughs> but it's a hell of a ride of a movie. It's not bad. It's really enjoyable. I'd watch it again. Mm-hmm. I just, it's not like Goldeneye where we were like, holy crap, they're back. They're like back in a major way. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, we... We brushed this one as fast as we freaking could and just got it done. <laughs> I think three's fair. I'm going to go with my gut. My Uh-oh. first reaction was three and a half. Okay. The last one was a four. Yeah. This one's a three and a half because I still, I enjoyed it. And it's like, I think like I'm same with you, but the half point is because it's just, he's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> he's just really hot. The The biting and the uniform, I can't help myself. It's He's really hot. I don't disagree. There you go. Like, yeah, it's, it's a three and a half for me. James, how many remote control BMWs are you giving this film? I was going to go for a three and a half as well, but then I remembered that Stamper had that suit, awful V-neck shirt combo, so I'm knocking half a point <laughs> off, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with three. 
he just he just was sitting on the roof. I'm like, that's not a bad suit. And then he turned around. I'm like, oh my god, what are you wearing? So no, <laughs> half a half a remote control car off just for that. Well, that's it. We watched it. We did it. We talked about it. James, if if people wanted more James in their lives, where could they find you? Oh boy. Uh, mostly, I'm on Twitter these days at James underscore Librarian. I don't have any current shows. I've got one on hiatus. Wink and uh, another or two possibly in the works, but yeah, the best place is James underscore librarian and any updates I have for anything that happens will be there. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking James Bond Oh, it was fun. I I had more thoughts than I thought I did and not about this movie, (laughs) but I found plenty to talk about by the end. So And we can't wait to have you back on for another film in the future. Oh yeah. I'm glad to do it. And until next time. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.